Good morning, everyone. Well, we have a very full house this morning. I think it's the largest editorial intelligence breakfast turnout, although quite a lot did trudge through the snow when we did uh, the City versus Wall Street with the Financial Times here a few months ago. I'm Julia Hobsbawm of Editorial Intelligence. I'd really like to thank Cass Business School again for uh, helping initiate and create this event and also our partner Breaking Views. Just before I hand over to Mrs. Moneypenny, I'm just going to tell you very briefly what these events are. Editorial Intelligence describes itself as the portal to the commentariat, and by that we mean that we aim to open a door onto this rarefied and increasingly influential world of the paid opinionated and the therefore opinion-forming classes in the newspapers and magazines. And in order to keep the data that we collate extensively live, as it were, we put on a series of topical events every month, such as this one, whereby we mix up the policymakers and the academics and the opinion formers with said writers, hence this event. I will just take a moment to plug to you one of the leaflets on your chair outlines that we now are the only source to read, analyze, digest, and summarize every single line of comment in the opinion pages, the financial pages, and the leader pages in the UK. And we are able to create for you bespoke analysis of any variation on a theme of this topic or any other topic you might like to consider. So on that purely promotional note, I shall hand over to Mrs. Moneypenny, who is, of course, an alter ego. Her alter ego is a visiting professor here at CAST. She runs a very well-established business in the West End. She's a former investment banker, but she will uh, remain an enigma. And in fact, a large number of people have come to me and said, I'm, I'm here to see what Mrs. Moneypenny looks like. So on that note, Mrs. Moneypenny. Thank you very much. Welcome, everybody. Um, I have to say that, as Julia said, I am paid to give an opinion every Saturday, much to the horror, I think, of many of my colleagues on the Financial Times who are very grown-up, serious journalists with Oxbridge degrees and who wince, I think, when they read about how much I pay to have my waxing done. Um, but I, um, I did actually venture forth on uh, the subject of private equity earlier this year when I flew to Australia for Christmas. I sent my husband and my children in economy, and a, a week later I flew down in first class, uh, which was a deliberate because I don't believe in children travelling at the front of the plane. And I, I, wrote, <laughs> I wrote afterwards this. I said, uh, presumably the key people taking Qantas private are hoping to make enough money to fly themselves and their children first class, or even better, by private jet, forever. But I just don't get it. The deal will be leveraged to the hilt in the usual manner of these things. Qantas will be refloated or sold in a few years, and a small number of investors will make a large amount of money. Had the board delivered the same performance improvement under public ownership, many more people would have been able to share in the gains. But of course, I too am a schizophrenic when it comes to private equity, because I too have a pension fund. Um, I want that pension fund to do as well as possible, and I would like it to be able to invest in Qantas and in Alliance Boots and in Sainsbury's and not have those opportunities taken away. But equally, I run a business that's in private hands, mine, and I've got absolutely no intention of it ever going public because I can't bear the intrusion and I can't bear somebody looking at what I do all the time and how much I pay myself. So I am completely split down the middle. I'm sure we all are here. Certainly the panel are. Um, we've got a very interesting panel this morning. 
the uh, first, our first speaker off the bat this morning, um, who will be uh, opening. I'm at Laws later on, so you'll see lots of cricket analogies this morning. But our opening batsman is Peter Linthwaite, and he is the chief executive of the British Private Equity and Venture Capital Association. Um, the, he was appointed there in September 2005, but as the, his biographical notes tell me here, he's been in the industry for 17 years. Earlier this week, you may have read that the um, BBCA, along with Capital Dynamics and PwC, published a report that showed that over the last 10 years, private equity achieved an 18.7% annual return, compared with the FTSE All Share of 7.9%. And over three years, it's an even more startling outperformance. It's 313 compared with 172 Peter commented at the time, a lot of private equity funds are currently raised from US pension funds and we'd like to have more money from the UK. And indeed, I, as a UK pension fund holder, feel that too. Where are you, Peter? I definitely <laughs> feel that too. Um, however, of course, in the same week, we had quotes from Watson Wyatt with a report saying that the industry was taking on bubble-like proportions um, and that deal opportunities were going to run dry. I'm fully expecting you to address that um, when you speak to us later on. The next speaker that we're going to have after that is Hamish McRae. I've been, it's been pointed out to me three times by three different people this morning that Hamish McRae is an award-winning journalist. He has um, been named the Best Communicator in the Business Journalist of the Year Awards. And the, um, the, it's interesting that the reason, his citation, which I think is very important for all of us this morning, was for his contribution to making complex business and financial stories accessible to a wider audience. So we are, where are you, Hamish? We're looking forward to your ex, you making this very accessible to us. I was a bit worried about Hamish coming this morning because um, I don't know if it's him or if it's some of the sub-editors around at The Independent, uh, but if you read the headlines of some of Hamish's stories, they make me feel positively depressed. Um, in the 10th of December, we had a headline saying, if the Chancellor played it straight, maybe we wouldn't be so grumpy. Uh, followed by the 7th of January, the figures are fine, but we're still fed up. And uh, on the 25th of January, the economy is strong, so why be grumpy? Well, uh, we're not very grumpy this morning. We're full of enthusiasm. Um, the, 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 the article of Hamish's that I commend to all of you, though, which may possibly be... Um, I don't know if it's repeated in here. This is a very nice thing on your chairs, everybody, by the way, from Breaking Views. Hamish wrote a piece on 28th of February, which I highly commend to you, called The Real Reason to Be Wary of Private Equity. Um, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself here, but the next speaker after that is Mario Levis. Uh, Mario is here at the end. Mario has done a lot of work on the public markets and on the equity markets in particular, and I fully expect you to have a view on whether or not we actually should take all of this money and uh, remove things from private equity markets because it might affect the, the workings of them. Um, Mario has looked at IPOs. He's looked at raising equity capital and also at private equity. Um, and after that, we've got Michael Meacher to my left, the Right Honourable Michael Meacher MP, who um, until relatively recently was prepared to be a Labour leadership contender. <laughs> I, I, and, uh, and stood down in favour of the man who has been stood down himself, I understand, yesterday when I was on a plane on the way back. Um, I did sort of struggle a bit with uh, what Michael Meacher might have to say on the subject of private equity until I realised that he was a member of a trade union. He's a member of a trade union called Unison, and in fact, I think you're their representative in Parliament, aren't you? 
the Unison representative in Parliament? Or? Uh, yeah, for that. <laughs> yes, yes. Unison um, have put up on their website a strategy for Labour leadership elections. And I- I'm very interested in this because Unison is a, is a union that actually represents people in the public sector and the voluntary sector, is it not? So I was very interested to see what their position was on the Labour leadership elections. The very last paragraph of their statement says... Members of both of our unions will want to debate the morality of billions of pounds worth of tax privileges enjoyed by the private equity industry. Private equity is driving the takeover of huge swathes of British industry, leading to asset stripping, job losses and declining customer service. So that's what Michael Meacher is sitting behind in terms of private equity, I suspect. That's their view, not necessarily mine. (laughs) (laughs) We'll wait to hear from him on that. Um, Michael Meacher, of course, does have a slightly different opinion to private equity probably than Peter, but they did both go to New College Oxford. (laughs) (laughs) So it only goes to show that they produce a number of different people. And then finally, we have uh, Hugo Dixon, who... um, uh, Sorry, Simon Nixon, (laughs) I'm getting there in the end, who works with Hugo Dixon, which is why I get so confused. Um, But they don't look anything like each other. And Simon Nixon himself has written a piece also in here, which I commend to you, which is obviously the piece that's got Unison completely worked up, you (laughs) realise called The Real UK Private Equity Tax Loophole, and it starts, what's the best-kept secret in UK private equity? The partners in buy-up funds pay as little as 5% tax on their performance profits. So with that, um, would you like to, to defend that, present that? Everyone's going to speak for five minutes, and after that we're going to have questions where people will have to identify themselves. This is on the record. It's being podcast. Peter. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, good morning. Um, a few general opening remarks. Um, You know, when I listen to some of the critics of private equity, I can't help remembering that rather forlorn character in um, The Life of Brian, who was forever sort of plaintively crying, well, what have the Romans ever done for us then? (laughs) To which he tended to get a fairly firm response, well, quite a lot, actually. So let me tell the Brians of the private equity world what private equity has done for them. It supported innovation by taking risks. Microsoft, Google... Cambridge Silicon Radio, even the independent newspaper was started with private equity backing, including a firm I used to work for. It has helped exciting companies to grow, the fat faces of this world for the younger generation, the new looks, which I'm not sure what generation they are, or the fitness first for the more flabby generations. It's enabled businesses to transform themselves and remain competitive in the face of international threats from emerging economies. It's been in the forefront of helping the UK develop a preeminent position in the financial services sector, and I tell you, that is the envy of all of Europe. And it has provided better pensions to millions of workers who have benefited from the superior returns mentioned just now, which have been consistently developed over decades, helping to some extent to plug the deficits that are the bane of so many of these funds. And not, of course, forgetting the universities, the endowment funds and the charities, where, again, these returns have assisted in uh, continuing to fund students, in helping research development, and in uh, looking after the uh, disadvantaged. The facts are that we back companies that create jobs faster, that grow sales and exports faster, that invest more in R&D and in capital expenditure. Three facts and three pieces of compelling evidence that private equity is very much in the public interest. And how do our detractors counter this? Well, let's get these criticisms on the table now, shall we? 
we're a bunch of asset strippers. Well, the facts don't show that. Not just our facts. The facts of academics, the facts of even newspapers like the Financial Times. But let's not just trust statistics. Let's think about this for a second. The whole point of private equity, as I'm sure you'll agree, is to make money for our investors, the pensioners. Do you do that by asset stripping? Is your house more valuable if you strip the tiles off the roof, rip out the central heating, and then claim it's a better house? Of course not. The argument is absurd. Private equity is about building better businesses, stronger businesses, and businesses that are demonstrably have added value. Because unless one can prove that, there is no hope of finding a buyer to ultimately pay a higher price for that business. Um, perhaps we're too secret, people say. More transparency, they cry. This is an industry that has come of age, and perhaps we have been a bit slow in recognizing that. But the industry has now seized the initiative. We have an independent review going, which will seek to demystify and list the confusions over what is meant by transparency and put in place a code of conduct that will be based on intellectually robust principles. Are we unregulated cowboys? Sorry, the FSA keep a very close watch on us. We have been regulated, will be regulated, fully regulated. The FSA did a two-year review on the industry and reported last year. Their conclusions, private equity is good for the UK economy. It is proportionately and appropriately regulated. I think that's strong support from a tough and well-respected regulator. And in a despairing last grasp, they clutch at the straw that we heard Elsa earlier. Ah, they're all a bunch of tax evaders. But what's this? Well, it's none other than the clunking fist of Gordon Brown, aided by Ed Balls. They have both stated clearly that there is no special tax deals for private equity. We play and pay by the same rules as everybody else. And that, I would tell you, is not necessarily the case throughout Europe, where many countries have, recognizing the benefits of private equity to their economy, have instituted special tax treatment to benefit the private equity industry. To me, our detractors fall into two camps. Those who want to see some pushback from, uh, and return towards a more planned economy. And for them, capitalism is the real issue, not private equity per se. And those who seek to perhaps make inappropriate generalizations based on the concerns of a few handful of deals. Ladies and gentlemen, private equity does not get it right all the time. It is one of a number of forms of ownership and investment appropriate at certain times and in certain circumstances. It is not the universal panacea, but nor is it by any stretch of the imagination the forces of darkness. Private equity supports innovation and success in all sectors of the economy. It invests across all regions of this country and for all types of businesses, both large and small. Its focus is on building better businesses. It empowers management. It is critical to a vibrant and successful economy. It has been good for creativity, good for jobs, good for growth, and good for Britain. And long may it continue. Thank you very much. Well, very eloquently put, I thought. And uh, Hamish, you're going to um, be next online. Um, 
kind of daunting, this one, isn't it? Um, when I first found myself about a couple of months ago having to sort of write about private equity, because that's what happens if you're a sort of all-purpose financial commentator, the story of the day, what do you think, you know, McCray, will you write about it? Uh, I did what journalists usually do when they um, don't know uh, much about a subject, which is you ring up someone, <laughs> a friend in the business. And I had then had a, a moment of clarity, um, which was, a friend said that one of the reasons was not just returns, it was that the relationship between the owners of the capital and the, um, uh, the management and, and themselves as, 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 as suppliers of capital was much better, much closer, much more honest than in the public markets. Um, so when you get a shift of a form of financial intermediation, you, you check through what are the reasons for it. Is it tax, is it regulation, whatever it is. I think it's maybe tax and regulation in some measure. But it's, if it actually, the flow of information is better, then you have to sort of question your prejudice that public markets are, are, are better than, than private markets. And then that really leads me to thought number two, which is um, we've had a very good example in the last week of a failure of public markets. Um, you had, uh, whatever it was, 10 years ago, uh, a huge company, wonderfully well organized with, with uh, uh, supervisory boards and secondary boards, of course, like Daimler Chrysler, making a catastrophic investment mistake and destroying huge amounts of, uh, uh, of wealth of its shareholders. And then what happens uh, now? It's rescued by private equity. Um, so private equity <coughs> steps in where public equity failed in this enormous uh, decision. Um, and then I thought, wait a minute, there's another example where this might have happened, which was the takeover of Rover by BMW, which might have been rescued by private equity, uh, Alchemy Partners, um, which was just at the time a no-brainer that what they were going to do wasn't going to work. Um, but Alchemy were blocked by actually union pressures. And I hope the union people who it wasn't Unison, was it? No, nothing to do with Unison. Um, it's your, your, your the public. Um, you know, just really hang their head in shame for having got that one so, so catastrophically wrong. Don't know that private equity would have worked, but it was worth a shot. And, of course, Rover was taken over, eventually, bits and pieces, by a couple of tiny Chinese companies, which leads me to thought number three, which is what we think actually doesn't matter very much because what will determine the balance between private equity and public equity over the next 30 years will be what the investors want. And if they choose to use the mechanism of private equity instead of public, then that's the way the game's going to go. And something like 80% of the incremental savings in the world now are coming from the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and Japan, Asia, the Middle East, and Russia. 80%. And so what they want, the sort of relationship that they want with their, uh, the, the things in which they invest, will actually determine this one. And if they don't even want to go through private equity, just want to take them over, th then that is what will happen. And my concern is, I suppose, that we have to figure out why the wonderful invention of the public markets, the, the joint stock company, um, invented actually here in London, which swept the world as a form of, of organization and ownership, is now, is now in, in, in some trouble and being challenged, uh, being challenged um, by, uh, not just by private equity, but actually just by private-private.
Thank you very much, Hamish. Um, right, we're now going to um, ask Mario if he will give his thoughts for the next five minutes. Thank you. Okay, I will, uh, I will talk from um, inevitably from uh, academic research that is available, not much, but still coming up on uh, private equity. And uh, I will try to concentrate on what, how we started here, on those gains from private equity. It seems to be a mystery. When I go to classes, start talking about students, about private equity, they consider it a mystery. A recent FT poll says that something 75% of the British public are not familiar with private equity. And uh, interestingly enough, in Italy and France, seems to be more awareness of private equity one way or another. Now, Peter here outlined the strongly and uh, impressive evidence about performance of private equity. And uh, what is not clear probably so much is how those gains are coming from, where they're coming from. And it is not easy to really explain how they achieve that impressive performance. If you look at the academic evidence, I mean, you can look at performance at three levels. You can look at funds levels, portfolio. You can look at performance at uh, shareholder level, in other words, from companies that sort of uh, uh, bought out. And you can look at performance at uh, private equity-backed IPOs. Now, if we start from the funds level, and if you take a long view, at least all of the U.S. evidence, I mean, going back in the U.S. and some European evidence, suggests that venture capital funds, yes, done uh, relatively well in the past, but more recently, uh, the outperformance has been rather marginal. If you look at buyout funds, again, the evidence that I have seen suggests that buyout funds are not necessarily outperforming any benchmarks that one looks at. Now, so why investors are so keen to buy them? They are keen to buy them and the institutions because in the usual way, uh, investors chasing winners and trying to identify those few that are doing well. And there is evidence that private equity funds, uh, there, is not cons uh, there, there are quite variation of performance. Some of them are doing very well. Some of them are rather poor. And uh, there is, however, evidence that they have consistent performance. If those that are good ones, they continue doing well in the future. Now, if you look at that from the companies that are bought out at a company level, what we find there, we see it every day, we see that bid premium for buyouts are quite high these days. Probably, if you take a long view, about 40% gains to the, to the shareholders when a company is bought out by private equity. It is, it is a bit higher than the bids paid by corporate takeovers. And uh, why they're paying so much? Now, okay, I mean, uh, we hear the views that they are overpaying and they are overvaluing. But it cannot be some, that simplistic. I don't think they just pay because of competition, because of the auctions, and so on. I think the evidence suggests that they are paying higher, higher premiums be, and uh, private equity because they are probably 
buying companies that they have more potential to grow, to grow in the future. There are evidence again suggests that yes, they are getting value of the tax incentives, but more importantly, it seems that the benefits that they see or the long-term gains that they see might be related to realignment of incentives, more sort of equity-related um, remunerations, and corporate uh, governance mechanisms. And I think they are important. Now, if you're thinking about corporate governance mechanisms, I think, uh, <clears throat> first of all, private equity run companies, a CEO has a boss. And I think that is important. Most of the public companies, CEOs, are not short of having a real uh, boss or control. Uh, there are small size with active, bo uh, with active boards. It is a limited, finite, yeah, the partnership is, uh, is finite, it has a, a time horizon, and that focuses the mind. They know that reputation matters. If they don't deliver, they run out, dry out of money. And uh, more importantly, I think, they don't, they don't need to play the market's game. The market's game whereby, oh well, I have to meet forecasts, I have to meet expectations, let's smooth earnings to keep the markets happy. And that is, I think, has a role to play. In other words, I think the benefits that arrive, they're focusing on strategic value rather than focusing and distracted by other matters. On private equity-backed IPOs, there is quite a bit of research, including both in the US and the UK, including my own. And what I do find is that there is positive performance. Over the years, we've been searching for performance of IPOs. And we do find here they come up on day one and give them three years, and you can be sure that you're losing money. But not private equity-backed IPOs. Private equity-backed IPOs in the US, they seem to have positive performance. When I looked at the UK private equity-backed IPOs, not so much, uh, not the emphasis on the strong performance, but they are consistent. In other words, you find that the, most of them are doing relatively well, and they keep repeating the performance at least three years after they come into the market. Now, okay. So why public companies do not replicate those mechanisms, those structures? I don't think it's that easy. It is an interesting question to think about it. If the, if the corporate governance mechanisms work for, for private companies, why don't replicate? I think the problem is that activist investors, institutional investors that are in public companies, do not necessarily add value. And there is academic evidence for that. And I think as well, that human capital and expertise, again, is not readily available. And uh, that probably may explain performance of private equities. Just a couple more thoughts quickly. Now, there are, so far I may sound sort of on the positive side, but uh, I have worries as well and concerns. The concern, my first concern relates to what just been mentioned early on, the competition of fundraising from private equity with fundraising for uh, new companies to be floated in the market. I think there is an issue here, and uh, 
I would run out of a job because I'm doing a lot of research of an IPOs. I don't want the IPO market to dry out because all the money is going to the, uh, is raised by private equity. And uh, I th the other thing is uh, the hedge fund business, the increasing involvement of hedge funds in private equity, I think is a concern. I strongly believe that private equity is a governance business, is not a transactions business. And, you know, we don't know where that may lead. And uh, <coughs> just to sum up, I think we have legitimate different views. I think there are a number of bodies and committees that are uh, set up and are working to look at different aspects. I think that any regulation that they may come must, must be non-discriminatory to private equity and has, and that is a difficult part, to look at the balance of benefits across the economy, not only picking up one issue and probably creating problems somewhere else. I think we all agree, we must all agree, that uh, the, there is not enough research, there is not enough understanding on the private equity side of things. Academic research is only coming up now, slowly. And uh, just to finish off, that here at CAS, we are committed to make a significant contribution towards that understanding of private equity by building up a strong body of research that will help the industry will help the markets, will help the regulators to get a better view of private equity. Thank you. Right. Simon, would you like to um, be last at the crease? Oh, Michael even. Sorry, I nearly left you out. <laughs> oh, well, this is the middle order. The middle order is looking good. Um, I, uh, I was very interested, actually, Michael, that you said when you were, when you said, as you can see from my notes in front of me, when you said you were going to support um, Mr. McDonnell for his leadership challenge, you said one of the things you were going to campaign on was reducing poverty in old age. And I therefore expect you to have a view on pension investment somewhere in here. <laughs> Uh, I certainly do. Uh, however, if you give me rather more than five minutes, I will tell you in full. I will, if, uh, <laughs> if it's agreeable to you, stand, because the only way in my workplace in which you are allowed to speak is when you stand up. Oh, I, I see a fellow MP at the back, too. Uh, and uh, one is rather used to it. I also like to see my audience, even though I recognise that probably uh, a number of you may not wish necessarily to see me. Um, my view about private equity is that it's not a black and white issue. It is not uh, all bad and it is not all good, but it is, in my view, desperately in need of reform. Private equity uh, in the past has given considerable assistance uh, in the form of venture capital to small businesses, which I think by and large has been <coughs> extremely positive and helpful. My main concern is that there is a new trend, which we have seen in recent years, where private equity firms are now going after healthy, well-managed companies, uh, restructuring, for which some people uh, might say looting, uh, them in the interests of huge personal gains for themselves at the expense of substantial job losses for employees and crippling the companies with debt. That's the charge which is made. And there is some evidence for it. Examples include uh, AA, <coughs> where within months of buying it, 
the private equity owners Permira and CVC Capital had cut 3,500 jobs and reduced frontline services for motorists drastically. Uh, Birdseye, uh, where Permira pledged uh, to keep workers' employment terms for at least three years, and then within five months closed a plant in Hull at a loss of 600 jobs. Debenhams, where the private equity partners increased the firm's debt from 100 million to 1.9 billion, paid themselves a dividend of 1.2 billion, sold the freehold of the stores for 500 million and leased them back, and then floated the business and took another 600 million, thus making three and a half times their investment in a little over two years and leaving Debenhams with huge interest payment and rent on stores which it once owned. As Roberto Italia, then of uh, Warburg Pincus, now of CBC Private Equity, has said, and I quote his words, his words not mine, of course we're out to shaft the companies we invested, unquote. <laughs> rather less graphically, rather less graphically, the Work Foundation reported, you may have seen this in the papers a couple of months ago, they found that private equity firms often swept aside existing labour practices, cut jobs and depressed wages. Deals that involved drafting in a new management team were the most disruptive and likely to result uh, in the biggest attack on wages, benefits and working conditions. Now, what is the motive behind all of this? Well, I think the engine for the private equity bonanza is, of course, uh, the changes which have been made in tax. It is quite right. It's, uh, they uh, have been given these benefits remarkably by a Labour government. Uh, first of all, uh, the government introduced uh, so-called taper relief on capital gains, which cut the capital gains uh, tax for people owning shares in their own companies or unlisted business businesses from 40% to just 10%, a huge gain, provided they owned them for 10 years. Then, amazingly, a few years later, the government cut it to two years. Well, what happened? Well, of course, exactly what you would expect. Companies started to set up all sorts of elaborate uh, so-called share-based pay schemes uh, designed to disguise income as capital, uh, so what did the government do? The government uh, immediately tried to block this. They changed the rules to ensure that shares received as part of a pay package should be declared as income. That's what you would expect a government to do. However, amazingly and unaccountably, the government, the Labour government, then exempted private equity from the new rules. That is an extraordinary anomaly and it's an extraordinary partiality towards private equity and I might say at public expense. According to government figures, uh, the uh, loophole uh, is actually costing the Treasury a fortune, something like four and a half billion a year now, compared to half a billion uh, in 1998. That is really an extraordinary change. I just want to uh, propose six main changes, because I'm not against private equity too court, only in terms of the way in which it operates and in the way in which it is now being applied. First of all, the taper relief loophole in capital gains tax for private equity firms should be immediately ended. Second, tax incentives should be staircased 
in order to encourage long-term investment uh, out over a 10-year period, which is what the government originally intended, and to discourage short-term in-and-out uh, asset stripping, call it what you like. Thirdly, the restructuring of company pension schemes to increase personal gains for private equity partners should be blocked. Fourth, there should be much greater transparency, I think we'll all probably agreed about that, uh, for, from private equity operations. In particular, the requirement to provide full quarterly reports in exactly the same way as publicly quoted companies. Fifth, the provision of tax relief for leverage buyouts should be ended. And sixth, private equity firms should be required beforehand to provide a public interest statement of the expected and intended impacts of the takeover on jobs, on debt, on investment and the longer term future of the target company. These are crucial key components of the British economy. They are not counters in a global casino. And in the public interest, we are entitled to receive those kinds of assurances. And that statement should be contractually binding for a stated period at least as far as employment is concerned. Now, there is a further problem which hasn't been mentioned, which I think is a very serious one. The sheer scale of recent multi-billion uh, private equity deals is now exposing banks to a default risk on a scale which we have previously not seen in the stock market since perhaps the late 1980s. The quality of lending by banks uh, to uh, private equity firms is now, I think, clearly showing signs of deteriorating. Much of it is what is called covenant light. What that means is if a firm goes bust, the bank will have little, if any, ability to reclaim the money lent. The problem, though, is that the scale of private equity deals, as we constantly see from the newspapers, it's now so huge that banks feel that they can't afford not to take part in them, and it, because if they don't, their competitors will. I conclude simply by saying that mortgaging the future to capture gains for personal enrichment in the present is very easy. But the fact is, what our country needs what successful business, if it is going to be sustainable, what the future of our economy needs is vision, its values, its leadership and purpose around an organisation's raison d'etre. And I submit that that is the antithesis of everything that private equity stands for. The case for reform is overwhelming and urgent. Thank you. I think we, we conclude they turn them up very eloquently from New College, Oxford, actually, either side of me. Um, the, would you um, like to bring up the, uh, the, the final stand at the crease for Trinity Cambridge, then? Thank you, Helen. I'm not quite sure where to start after, um, after that, but I think, I think I'll start with, the, um, with, with, uh, Hamish's, with um, Michael's point about tax. Um, I mean, I, I, I think he's absolutely right that private equity um, plays by the same rules as every other kind of company, um, um, but Peter be was being disingenuous to, suge uh, to suggest that, um, that there are no loopholes of private equity. As, as Michael says, um, taper relief has been an enormous bonanza for private equity. I think the £4.5 is probably exaggerated, Michael. I think that refers to all taper relief, which would involve all sorts of companies, like people selling their own businesses, not just private equity companies. But, but I think that the point that 
that the tax point draws is just explains it really sort of illustrates why we're here, which is just how much this industry has changed in a decade. You know, the 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 loophole or the special treatment that the governments that successive governments in the 1980s and again in 2003 gave to private equity. Um, were, were they, those, those concessions were given because at that time private equity was considered venture capital, it was considered you know, investing in startups, it was considered a great social good. And in fact, you know, I think it's no surprise that Gordon Brown's closest financial advisor is Sir Ronald Cohen. You know, back in 1997, private equity, far from being the demons they're seen as today, it was considered the acceptable face of capitalism. Um, so, so the industry has changed beyond recognition, and that's why we're here. It, it's grown in scale. And, and I think, so the first point I want to make is, you know, why has it done that? And in, in a sense, that's because in the last 10 years, it really, the, um, uh, the markets have hit a kind of perfect storm that's created a fabulous opportunity for private equity. The first is clearly the, uh, the, the crushing of inflation and, the, and interest rates falling very dramatically, making it very cheap to borrow and to finance companies with debt. Um, the second point is the uh, collapse in the stock market post-2001. Uh, which in itself was partly due to the pensions industry, that, um, which in a moment of genius poured all their money into the dot-coms in the run-up to the dot-com bubble, lost a bucket, the market collapsed, and then in a second moment of genius, they then took all their money out of the stock market at the bottom and put it into bonds. So the, the pensions industry and the stock market did extremely badly, and it was no surprise that some very smart investors using borrowed money bought companies at the very bottom of the market and over, pre over the next five years have made some fabulous returns. And, and I think and the, the third bit of the perfect storm that came to private equity over the last few years uh, has actually been globalization and the restructuring of the global economy. And I think that you know, one of the things that it's easy to overlook is that private equity has played an absolutely crucial role in that. This restructuring of the global economy has take, taken place with the rise of China, the rise of India, um, because of changes in technology, um, and, 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 and public companies have had to restructure to, to change that. They've had to, um, they've refocused uh, on their core businesses, which means splitting out non-core businesses, which may have been unloved divisions of big companies. Um, they've made, they've had to expand overseas. They've had to, 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 to restructure their operations into, to, into global manufacturing. And private equity has played an, an enormously important role in taking those divisions from uh, taking unloved divisions and turning them to healthy companies and, and helping in that restructuring. So there's been a perfect storm um, in, in private equity. Uh, so this, the next point I'd like, therefore, to look at is, is therefore, are, is, the private, is private equity now in a bubble situation? You know, has, has the market got ahead of itself? Um, and, and I think the answer to that is, is maybe yes, maybe no. Maybe, as is always the case in markets, maybe too much money is poured into private equity um, uh, now at a time when the opportunities are, are diminishing. But I think that the point is that private equity is fulfilling, has, fulfilled, has clearly found an, a need in the markets um, where, where the, the model has clearly proven that it can work, that it can, can create healthy, strong companies. And that's really what this debate ultimately is about is it in the public is private equity in the public interest and what do we want from public what do we want from our corporate sector we want firstly good jobs and we want profits profits to pay tax and profits to pay out dividends to our pension schemes and um, I think that there's no doubt that we can that we can say that private equity produces great profits otherwise we wouldn't be here today debating it 
Um, and so, um, and, and the statistics show that private equity has consistently produced more jobs than public companies. So I think that the real question we need to ask is, is why has private equity succeeded so well and why are public companies failing? And, um, and, 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 and I think that the reality is that private equity is actually, is actually um, the model is, is going to only carry on becoming more successful and I think we'll see a lot more of it in the future and I think that's a good thing. Thank you very much. Right, it's um, quarter past nine. Um, we're, we're going to take questions now. Um, I think I'm, I'm just as uh, schizophrenic about this as I was when we started 45 minutes ago. Um, I, I did notice when I was doing my research for this event that that um, gripping must-read magazine, Accountancy magazine, I'm sure you're all very familiar with, uh, had a very good headline, um, which reminded me to look and see who their sub is, which... Uh, was called Locust or Lifeline. So is private equity Locust or Lifeline? Do answer your, direct your questions, either at the whole panel or indeed at one, any one particular person. Uh, could you stand up, um, as Michael said, you know, in his place of work, you have to stand up. So could you stand up and say where you're from and a microphone will be brought to you, I think. Nobody seems to be asking the question, should regulators be interfering in markets by forcing pension funds to put their money into bonds, artificially depressing interest rates, credit markets, uh, underpricing risks. So, of course, they come in and buy up companies for cheap. Well, the question is, sh shouldn't regulators, should regulators be interfering in markets? Because of look, look what happened. Well, uh, Peter pointed out to us earlier, it's a very well-regulated industry. Do you want to make a comment on regulation? I mean, I think generally regulation, you've got to look at, clearly you do need regulation. The question is, what is the the purpose of regulation. The purpose of regulation, and this is where I would take certain issue with Michael on a number of issues, is not to determine the commercial relationships between parties of equal standing. Rela regulation should be to ensure financial stability in the markets and to protect investors who are not themselves, perhaps lack the sophistication, to understand fully the products into which they're investing. But where there is equality of uh, experience, where there is equality of negotiating power, and where there is not a risk to financial stability, then I do not feel the regulator should be involved. Right. Next question. Simon Walker from Reuters. I wanted to ask really about short-termism, and which has become sort of a cliche in criticisms of public companies, but whether it isn't the, the fact of quarterly reporting and the sort of extreme accountability of public companies, particularly if they're trying to change things that doesn't make private equity so much more attractive. And I actually think Ms. Moneypenny's example of Qantas is quite an interesting one um, because I think the problems of... I was at British Airways for a long time. I, the problems of airlines are so sort of deep-rooted that you're never actually going to fix the structural problems if you've got quarterly reporting and people saying, you can't do that, that's going to ruin the share price because there could be a strike next week. Uh, Qantas, I, I thought, I'm sorry the, the, the attempts failed, but actually had rather a good route um, by acquiring investors with deep pockets who could make fundamental changes. It's terribly difficult to do that if you've got analysts saying every three months that particular investment decision is a doubtful one. We don't like that. What's that going to do to EPS? I think that that's a huge problem for public companies and just makes life so much easier if you are trying to make major changes, which can be quite necessary. And I thought Hamish's example of Rover is just the ultimate telling one because it might have had a chance. Mm -hmm. Again, I, I, uh, 
just to get a question out of that, I, I while Michael mo, while Michael was speaking, um, uh, saying suggesting quarterly reporting for private equity companies, Peter was passing me a note saying, you know, you're a private company. Would you like to report quarterly? And of course, I would absolutely not like to report quarterly. Um, Michael, did you have a reason for suggesting quarterly reporting? Uh, yes, um, I do think when we are talking about um, very large and key parts of the economy, there is a public interest in knowing uh, what is going on in those companies. Of course, if fundamental changes are needed, uh, that is desirable. Uh, if there is a good case for them, it can perfectly well be made. And the analysts, when they read the quarterly reports, should understand that. They can comment as much as they like. But there is a balance between accountability and freedom. That's actually what we're talking about. Uh, I wouldn't want to limit uh, the capability of the managers of any large uh, public company making the changes which are desirable. But I really don't think quarterly reporting uh, is an, uh, an unreasonable constraint on that. And I do think public interest has an entitlement to transparency. Right, next question. Yeah, so it's Richard Gillingwater here. Can I ask a different version of the last question? And that is that um, one of the issues that's often put out on the table um, about private equity is actually that, and I don't know whether Mario's got statistics on this, but that um, the actual period of ownership by private equity funds is increasingly becoming shorter and shorter. And you know, I have to declare I'm on the board of Debenhams as a public company coming in after private equity ownership. Um, I think one of the issues is that uh, increasingly what you're seeing is very, very short periods of um, private equity ownership, Trem tremendous sort of galvanizing within a very short period of time. And maybe one of the issues is that the public company is, is as it were, in it for the long haul, um, unless it gets recycled by private equity. Uh, is in it for the long haul and has to pace itself a lot more. And I just wonder whether uh, there are any reflections on the, you know, the quick flip versus the long haul. Thank you. Um, Richard Giddingwater is, by the way, as well as on the board of Debenhams, our new dean here um, at uh, CAS. I think you're in week five, are you now? Week five. Um, and uh, Mario, would you like to uh, comment on your boss's question? <laughs> <laughs> On a week five, yes, I wouldn't uh, do that. <laughs> now, uh, it seems that. Right <laughs> no, I'm thinking about my position. <laughs> <laughs> now, and no, I mean the sorting of uh, investment horizons by uh, private equity might be related to the performance that we see that changed in the 90s and today, and I was saying early on. It doesn't seem, globally at least, doesn't seem to be as uh, strong as it was in the 90s. May have to do with that. Now, on the quarterly reporting and the reporting, I think this is, this, is a key, this is a key issue. I think the problem trying to meet expectations of analysts, it is creating pressures that are not necessarily adding value. And the pressures that is, are creating, we know all the evidence we have, our analysts are optimistic. 
I don't know if they are born or they become optimistic when they start this particular type of uh, line of job. But definitely it is the fact that they're optimistic and they're putting pressure on short of the public companies to meet that expectation. That it is not healthy. I think the Qantas case that has been mentioned, not if I may make a quick comment on that. I think it's a good example, really, of a company that... Uh, it's done extremely well in the last year, and I think one of the reasons that the bid sort of failed is the fact that they have improved so much, and therefore it was not anymore a case of further improvement to be added by private equity. In spite of everything else that one could add, other things that added to the failure of the bid, in my book, this is the main reason of a company that has been galvanized and has been, over a short time period, has improved its performance so far as to make the case for a private equity not necessarily anymore. Qantas, of course, had three upward revisions of its uh, earnings estimates this year, which I'm convinced is because they refused to put Krug back in first class. So obviously cutting costs to a minimum. Um, uh, Peter, would you like to comment about that? I know you've got some figures on the average length of time that private equity holds things. Yeah. I mean, I, the statistics show that there isn't a, um, a, any appreciable change in recent, um, uh, in recent years. It's still around for just over four years. Um, I think when you look at what private equity does in a deal. What it does is it goes in on the back of a business plan, a strategic plan for that company. <laughs> I think where you have a very benign economy, it is often the case that the plan for the business, and I think if you take Debenhams, it's probably an interesting example, was achieved quicker than, than was probably initially thought when, they, when the investors and management came together to, to, to make the investment in Debenhams initially. If you do that, if you achieve your plans earlier, then quite clearly... Um, uh, there is an opportunity to realise value which you will take. Equally, there are periods in the economic cycle, and I remember investing in the um, early 90s, where we were holding investments for seven, eight, or nine years because the whole execution of the plan just took much, much, much longer because the economic environment uh, was very tough. So I think it's more to do with what is the plan for the business, what is what is the basis, the investment thesis on which the investors went into it, and when that is achieved, uh, it, it may be a time for a change in control. Right, a question from over here. Yes, uh, J Julian Samway's Harmonic Capital. Uh, two legitimate concerns, I think, in private equity. One is uh, the amount of leverage which is taking place, which is relatively recent, and secondly, transparency issues. But does the panel think that that's sort of self-correcting? Because we're in this global liquidity boom, and that will end at some stage, and it will be very painful for some private equity deals. But that's the way markets work, just, just as the way property markets work, for example, where we've seen cycles there. And secondly, on transparency, as more pension funds invest in private equity, they will demand that private equity becomes more transparent because they're held accountable to their own pensioners. And there's a correct self-correcting mechanism there. And I was... Uh, head of global commun communications at Schroeder's and 15 years ago they never spoke to anybody about what they did with their investments and pension funds forced them to do so like all asset, traditional asset management companies over a period of time. So while I do share the concerns of Michael Meacher, I, I do think there's an element of self-correction in some of the issues related to private equity and do the panel agree with me? Well, shall we um, put this question to the two journalists on the panel who presumably have the biggest amount to gain from greater transparency? Hamish, do you um, think it's getting more transparent? It will get more transparent? Um, With or without 
I think that the issue is not whether it's, yes, whether it's quarterly reporting, it's whether it's the, the basis on which you do the reporting. I mean, if you do it in private, you can say much more than you do it in public. Um, and that, that, that's wrong. It ought not to work around that way, but it does. I, I'm fascinated by this um, cycleitis business. You know, we are, whatever it is, two-thirds of the way, three-quarters, whatever, through this cycle. And we know that there will be a very rough period ahead within the next three years, four years, whatever. Um, and in some way, um, private equity will be associated with that downturn. Um, what we can't see is whether that's better or worse you know, than having, having, having public markets uh, caned as they were during the last cycle of the 30-year storm. Um, I would have thought inherently it ought to, our system ought to be more robust now than it was then, simply because there are more sources of funds where you don't have to be answerable very closely um, to your investors. And, it, and, and coming back to my earlier point, I mean, those funds may come from Russia or they may come from China or, or they may come from, from India. Um, people who are actually prepared to look right through the cycle uh, and keep businesses going uh, uh, despite the fact that uh, liquidity has been withdrawn from, uh, from the whole market. And uh, Simon? Um. Well, the first point, uh, the first one on transparency. I suppose the, the point has been quarterly reporting to who. Um, uh, private, I mean, private equity funds already, I mean, provide an enormous amount of information to their investors, um, and uh, and in fact, um, Calpers, the American, uh, the um, Californian Public Employees Union, uh, actually um, insists on putting a lot of this information up on its website. So you can actually find out quite a lot of stuff about these private equity firms. Um, from if you if you've prepared to hunt around, but but um, so investors in, so investors do get a lot of information. The question is, should the public have it? I, mean, I think the point is that also that, I mean I think it's the, the question is right that um, the market self-correcting in respect. And I was talking to one of the major UK private equity firms the other day, and they were telling me that um, that until but just before Christmas last year, before this sort of backlash started, they were getting about four press inquiries a week. Um, about their activities, most of which were along the lines of, are you looking at this company, are you looking at that company? Since Christmas, they're getting nine a day. So, I mean, there's it's been a sort of a massive increase in interest in private equity just in the last, just, just, just in the last six months, and this debate reflects that. Um, so, so I think inevitably, you know, that, and, and I've seen it already just this year, that private equity companies are becoming much more amenable to talking to journalists. Um, but, but one has to sort of be careful about this because, I mean, one of the, you know, because we've discussed already and everyone's acknowledged, private equity is very good at, at backing companies at moments of change. And companies have to change as the world restructures we discussed. Um, and publicity can be very unsettling, not just for the people who run firms, but it can be unsettling for people who work in firms. So, in a sense, one of the great advantages of private equity is being shielded from. Um, from a lot of from from a lot of publicity, so one has to be, you know, um, careful that one one doesn't want to unsettle companies, un, you know, the employees of companies um, who get anxious about their jobs if they see a short dip in profitability, uh, which is inevitable at times of change. Can I just also then just the other point was about leverage, and clearly, you know, this is something in the city people are obsessed with all the time. You know, uh, everybody's sort of waiting with bated breath. Everyone, you know, everybody's been. 
a lot of people are predicting the end of the cycle now for about three or four years, and, um, and it may well be another three or four years before it comes. Who knows? But, um, but a couple of points here. Firstly, that, um, that clearly that, that, that the private equity firms themselves are as conscious of the cycle as anybody else. You know, things, developments, but developments like Covlight loans that were mentioned earlier, uh, you know, clearly, you know, suggest that credit quality is slipping, that, um, that, that there's an element of exuberance in the credit markets and risk is being maybe being mispriced. But for the private equity firms, on the other hand, that provides a level of protection that means that in a downturn they should be able to cope slightly better. Inevitably, though, at some point, of course, it's quite possible, quite likely even, that when the downturn comes, companies will, a private equity firm, a private equity deal will go wrong. That's just, that's just inevitable, although that hasn't happened for a long time now. But then private equity may actually provide the, its own solution because a lot of private equity firms and hedge funds are putting enormous amounts of money into restructuring um, funds, which are all waiting to pick up the pieces of these firms and, and, put, the, you know, and, to, and put them back together again. So private equity, the market and private equity may well have the solution to, its, to the downturn when it comes. Thank you. And um, Michael, would you like to make a comment on that? Oh, yes. I mean, if I could comment on the um, question about self-correcting mechanisms, um, which I think is an interesting one. I mean, one of the uh, many people say is the great advantages of capitalism, as you say, is that there are brutal self-correcting mechanisms within the economic system. The real problem is that the collateral damage which is caused by the application of those self-correcting uh, mechanisms is so great and visited on so many others who are in no way responsible that there is a duty on the public authorities to try to diminish uh, the savagery of these cycles, if possible, and all governments across the, uh, across the West have been trying to do this for the last uh, half century. Um, I mean, I do think uh, the impact, of course, on the workers, uh, if companies go down, the impact on the whole structure uh, of the economy, because these are key sectors within it, uh, can be uh, extraordinarily unfortunate consequences, which any government or public authorities would want to try and prevent or diminish if they can. And as for transparency, well, OK, I, I can see the argument why within the system itself there are pressures to increase it, but there is also a very strong natural tendency to secretiveness. I mean, we all feel like that. It's in politics, in business, in all sorts of organisations. It's a lot easier to do exactly what you want uh, if you do it secretly. The trouble is, what you're doing may not be in the wider public interest. That's why uh, I think there is justification in having at least minimal rules to ensure that proper information is properly shared. Right, let's have a question. Henrietta, you need a microphone there. Can we give Henrietta a microphone? Henry is Royal, um, Cass Business School. There have been a rash of IPOs of private equity-backed companies recently. To what extent do you think they're calling the top of the market? And if the market does go down and private equity firms don't have this exit possibility in the same way, potentially with profit, is that going to cause problems? Well, um, Mario, I think, should start with this because uh, he mentioned earlier that uh, IPOs of private equity-backed firms are always successful. So uh, I was not as absolute as that. Uh, <laughs> uh, I was what it appears to be. Obviously, there is a need for an exit at some point, whatever form that exit will uh, 
take place, IPO is one of the forms, probably is not the, always the most uh, popular one. Now, the IPOs that we see coming is, they are not necessarily better performance. What I think why pension funds probably should like them is their more consistent performance. In other words, what we are seeing there that they have, they are operating within a range. You won't find many that are very bad. You are not going to find many that are spectacular. They are more consistent. And the other thing that why pension funds probably like them is that they keep delivering performance slowly but consistently over a number of years. And you are not going to get those, uh, those that they're going to do abnormally well. Now, at uh, the same time, though, what is interesting with the performance, if you're looking at real performance in accounting terms, what we do find is that they keep performing in terms of growth sales, in terms of uh, uh, growth of earnings. They keep performing as well uh, as they were doing as private companies they are keep performing as well uh, when they're coming to the market. And that is not the case with normal IPOs. Normal IPOs, what they appear to be doing as building up performance, preparing themselves, they hit the market at the perfect timing, and from that point onwards, even their accounting performance is not spectacular anymore. P private equity back, they seem to be more consistent, both in market terms and in accounting terms. And Peter, what do you think about um, what's going to happen if there's no exit route? I mean, there is now, of course, a very well-developed secondary and tertiary yeah. I think, fund yes. transfer between funds. I think that is the, uh, the critical point here. There are three real exit routes now, whereas there used to be probably only two. There's obviously the, institution, uh, the trade buyer, that's to say another industrial group. Clearly, when their share prices are high, that, that enables them to issue new, new equities, which allows them to, to purchase and make acquisitions. Um, you do have the growth of the secondaries, and I wouldn't underestimate that. Now, you see companies, the FTSE 100 equivalents like Gala, that have perhaps been through two or three different private equity ownerships, each one developing it on the business onto the next stage. So I think that you are no longer as dependent uh, on the IPO market for exits as you once were. And that is really a reflection on the broad breadth and depth that private equity now has as a capital market. Um, another question? Can we take a question at the back? Uh, hello, Peter Dobby from the Mail on Sunday. Um, not so long ago, as Michael knows, this issue would have been meat and drink for many, many MPs in the Labour Party, the Parliamentary Party, and a matter of huge debate. In view of the inability to even mount a challenge to Gordon Brown this week, does he really think that there is this public interest in this issue, or is it simply Gordon having bullied people to come round? Um, but on a serious note, uh, I really wonder whether the argument that out there, the public, really are that concerned or they accept it as being part of our global market economy. And, and Michael, actually, I've got a supplementary, as I'd say, <laughs> to that, well, which, uh, is that, which is that, can I just say, can I also ask a supplementary, and you can answer it all in the same go, which is that if it, if it wasn't, if it isn't important, why have, do you think that Gordon Brown has stopped the buyout of the tote by um, something that's been backed by Lloyds Bank private equity? <laughs> Well, uh, 
I didn't realise the Mail on Sunday was here, but had I known, uh, uh, I, I could have guessed that there would be something about uh, the leadership. Um, I mean, there's a lot to be said about this. It's not really about uh, private equity. Uh, the fact is, I think there always was, uh, from the start, um, an, inevitabil an inevitability about uh, the uh, Gordon Brown Premiership. Uh, I simply say, and there's an awful lot I would love to say, but I simply say, I think it is a great pity that people have had a choice, I think it would have been better, not just for the party and the electorate, but also for Gordon Brown. And secondly, we need a public debate in this country. We don't have these broad-ranging debates about the, 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 the direction of government travel over the next five years. And I think that would be entirely healthy. People would participate in it. He might learn something of what people were thinking, and actually that would assist the future direction of his government. Anyway, that hasn't happened. Now, Peter, you also asked uh, this question about is there much interest in private equity? I think Mario said that 75% of the people in this country don't know much about private equity. Well, I thought it was probably 98%. I mean, it is a subject which, of course, is a, a mystique. Um, it's very little understood indeed. But that doesn't mean to say it's not extraordinarily important. We have journalists. Uh, like Hamish and Simon, who are there, as you said, uh, Madam Chairman, at the start, are there to translate what are seen as complex and difficult issues into a form which actually relates to people's lives. Private equity is a major institution in this country. It impacts on the welfare of the economy uh, and on the future of millions of individuals. I think it's what one quarter of the British economy is now in the hands of private equity, something of that kind. So it is extremely extraordinarily important. And I don't just think we can have these discussions behind closed doors within the city or parliament or something. It is something which we need to get into the newspapers and to do a thing which I'm not good at, to get people to understand it in simple, concrete terms. So uh, the fact that it is uh, difficult, it's not something that the tabloids are going to take up, is not a reason why we shouldn't put a lot more effort into getting a public debate about this very important issue. And thank you for what you've done today. Um, and Peter, and I I still haven't got a comment about what's going to happen about the tote, which I'm dying to know. <laughs> I, don't, I, I mean, I don't think the tote... The, the tote was... Uh, it, I don't believe it was, it was an anti-private equity decision. Um, and I, you think it's a leadership issue? No, I think it was, it was to do with the process under which the, the tote was, was being looked at, which was a sale to the industry, the racing industry, and the question was whether the structure was a sale to the racing industry, right. per se. And, and the question about can whether, I, whether it's really a, sorry, whether, no. whether private the question yeah. that Michael answered about is private yeah, equity yeah. really a subject for debate? You must have seen the volume of interest in. in yeah. the, I mean, you must have been at first hand seen what, how the volume of interest has changed. It's not just been from four inquiries a week, whatever it was, to nine a day. It must have been a, a lot greater than that. Uh, for us, it's been absolutely massive. But I mean, I think I have on my wall in the office a. Uh, a headline, Watch Your Privates, which is in the um, sun, as only the sun can come up with these things. And I think once you get a headline like that, uh, you know you are in the mainstream. <laughs> unlike, the unlike the Independent on Sunday, which no doubt will have a headline, Do You Feel Grumpy About Private Equity? Um, <laughs> right, can we take one question? We are actually going to um, uh, call Stumps at 9.45 this morning so that you can all have a chance to talk to each other. Can we take one more question over here, please? person whose hand is up. No, the one closer to me, and then we'll take one at the back. Scott Fulton, Citygate, Drew Rogerson. I was just wondering what the panel thought about Sir Nigel Rudd's recent comments that all investment analysts are stupid. All the sell-side analysts were stupid, I thought, yes? Yes. 
yes. As I have a personal view on sell-side analysts, and I, I, st- I start from a position of having been one once, um, which is that you can't afford, if you're a public company, to ignore any sell-side analyst, because um, I think I was, I was uh, in the States on Monday with a company called Coach, and they have 29 sell-side analysts covering their stock, and the, after their results, the top five or six or ten, the clever ones, are all under siege on their telephones from institutional investors, so the press can't get through, so the press actually get through it all the really stupid ones. So you can't afford to ignore the stupid analysts on the sell side because the press will get hold of them and quote them. Um, so, uh, yes, <laughs> that may be the answer. But, um, uh, Mario, from an academic perspective, do you think sell side analysts are stupid? You, are, you said they're always talk- optimistic. I was talking about optimistic rather than <laughs> anything else. And they seem to be optimistic, and there is a lot of evidence on that. Now, however, whether they're optimistic just because so happens, or they do are deliberately optimistic, that is more interesting question. And there, are, there, there is quite a bit of uh, ground to believe that quite often they are optimistic because they have to be optimistic, because they have agency issues, they have to satisfy different masters, and uh, therefore that is the game that they play. Quite a lot of our students, sort of on uh, postgraduates, our first destination, career destinations, are analysts, and I do know our students are not stupid. So, <laughs> they, they, in his case, Nigel Rob was upset that they weren't optimistic enough, and that they had undervalued his company so much that it, it drove it into the arms of Stefano Pessina and KKR. Uh, Peter, do you want to have a comment on sell-side analysts and private equity? Well, I, I think it goes to the to to this question of of the time horizon. Uh, the, uh, having worked with listed fund managers um, in, in my career as well, I know that they are, are looking on a three to six month basis in terms of the, the portfolio performances, and that is how they're judged and uh, by their by their clients, the pension funds. The irony is the pension funds then invest in private equity uh, and give them a, a, give us a five year, ten year view on, on the way we conduct our investment business. And so quite clearly, uh, an in, in a sell-side analyst is looking at relative value. He's not looking at absolutely as boots at this price. He's looking at, it, is it relative to other opportunities in the similar sector, a, a good buy or a, or a poor buy over the next six, six months? It's a fundamentally different uh, uh, equation that you're asking them to, to look at. Right. Well, we'll take one more question. The person at the very back who had their hand up. Tessa Nayani from Smithfield. Um, actually, because I'm the last um, one to... Do have a question. Actually, it's more. I just want to reg- register my disappointment. In as much as um, you know, while um, you're, we're talking about the commentariat here, I think we should also reflect the powerful. And although we skirted, um, skirted towards it, I think the bottom line is um, I'm disappointed that you don't have um, a fund manager or someone who's in charge of a very, very powerful pension fund. Because my understanding of private equity is they provide a service. Yes, and they do do your house up, and they nice, put nice magnolia walls and nice wooden floors, and they do try to add value and indeed sell it on to someone else who wants to add value further. Um, and yes, there are legal frameworks, and yes, it's human nature to push as far as, as possible within, you know, within the scope of legal framework. But um, you know, surely this debate really should revolve around what pension fund managers or institution investors think, because it's their decision to flip, flip from the public market into private equity, and it's indeed their decision to buy back into um, private equity at the other end, albeit at a, an inflated cost. And surely that's the controversy. It's not actually the private equity, which 
ultimately is just providing service like a lot of bankers and PR people, lawyers in this room. Thanks. Yes, all right. Well, we'll have a, a memo to Julia that next year she'll invite Anthony Bolton. Um, is there... Uh, do we have anybody on this side that would like to ask one last question? No? Right? I, um, I have to say that when I was doing my research for this... Um, I was busy reading up something that Hamish had written, and I'm now <laughs> bad luck, Hamish. And and he did uh, say make a three points in an article that he wrote this year, which I would I think is something we might all dwell on for the end. And he said, unlike Michael, who had six things that he wanted to happen, um, one of which we're still all in shock on the subject of quarterly reporting. Let alone I'm going to go back and look up what staircasing means. Um, uh, the, but Hamish said he felt there were three things uh, in this article that he wrote that he felt needed to happen. One was that people should acknowledge that the net benefit of private equity to employment and investment is enormous. I'm not going to um, trouble you by reading out his entire article, but he had got stats to back that up, and I think we've heard some of them from Peter. Um, the second he suggested was to look at detailed measures to make public markets more competitive so that more activity goes through them instead. And the third was to find ways of persuading the private equity industry not just to trim the fat of the companies it takes over, but to trim some of its own also. I think it's not surprising that he has won an award to make things, for making difficult things more easily understood. And I'm sure the 100,000 employees of Alliance Boots well, who all asked the question, apparently, what is private equity, when, when they were confronted with it, would have appreciated um, exactly that kind of explanation. Um, thank you all very much indeed. I'd like to uh, ask for a round of applause for our panel. Thank you.